0: 1 Kings chapter 10, we're going to read the first 13 verses for the basis for our text this morning, and I anticipate, although I won't be dogmatic about it, that this will be our text maybe in the next few weeks as we will seek to preach from this text, and I think it will take more than I know today's message will be somewhat of an introduction, but many things that uh, are on our heart to. be said here. We don't know the length of time it may take, but uh, been some time since we did a series of any kind. But we were impressed with this. So let's read 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13 And when the queen of Sheba heard the fame, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel... And his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came. And mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity... Exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold, and of spices very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to king Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir a great plenty of almond trees and precious stones." And the king made of the almag trees pillars of the house of the Lord, and for the king's house, harps also, and psalteries for singers. There came no such almond trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. 11 of those verses are directly speaking of the queen of Sheba and Solomon. If you notice there in our reading in verses 11 and 12, there was a digression concerning the trees and the gold from Hiram. But the other 11 of the 13 verses was about Solomon and the queen of Sheba. And so we're going to title this Solomon and the queen. Solomon and the queen. And this same narrative that we have read is recorded in 2 Chronicles, just almost word for word, as Chronicles is just that. Pretty much a repetition of other things in other places in the kings and so forth and so on. Except in 2 Chronicles 9, it is the first 12 verses. And here we have 13, but the difference is... Verses one and two of First Kings 10 here are condensed into one verse in chronicles, but otherwise, when you read it, it's the same. So 1:12, 1,13. As we read this, as we read any portion of Bible of the Bible, we realize that what we have read here is history. It is historical and from one standpoint. We realize also that it is a story of the interaction between two persons. But of course, the Bible is more than history and more than stories. And as Christians, we look at it differently than non-Christians do. I shall never forget someone one time that made an impression upon me by saying when we were kind of talking about religious things, And then this person very seriously said, well, the Bible just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I'd already always known that the Bible didn't make sense to a lot of people. And you wonder why the Bible doesn't make sense to a lot of people and why some people get it and some people don't and things. Well, the Bible has an answer to those things. But I remember that particular thing made an impression on me as a preacher because it drove me to the scripture in 1 Corinthians that says, The natural man receiveth not the things of God, because they are spiritually discerned. And there are many other scriptures similar to that, that speaks about the seeing eye, the hearing ear, those that have eyes to see, those that have ears to hear and understand. And of course, if you were brought up in church or a Sunday school, you realize that you were taught, as children are taught, that These stories are not just stories, but they have meaning. But as children, we just take them as stories. And so as a child, I learned all the stories of the Bible because that's what we were taught in Sunday school. And I'm not against that. But when God saved me, and when God saves His people, then we begin to see there are deeper meanings within those stories. They're not just stories. Like the stories that people write... And I don't mean to be cheap here, but a comparison. They're different than Mother Goose stories. You know, they're in the Bible, and they have a greater meaning. The problem with a lot of Christian people is, number one, they just take them as stories or history, or they're never taught any different, that there's a deeper meaning, and that meaning is not taught unto them. So many Christians remain children in their spiritual walk for that reason. Well, in the story, the history, the narrative we've read today, I think there is an underlying deep meaning about Christ, about grace, and about redemption. And that's what we will seek to expose and reveal unto you in however many messages we spend on this. But again, I remind you that as Christians... The Bible's not a storybook, and it's not a history book. The Bible is God's Word. And there are three things I have continually pointed out to you and will remind you again today and to all who may hear me, that when you come to open the pages of the books of God's Word, three things need to be upon your mind. Number one is the object of this entire book is Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. The incarnate Son of God. He is the object. He is the object. Don't open the Bible and start looking for other stuff. Look for the person of Christ. Because it is a person that is the focus of this book from Genesis to Revelation. Yes, it is a book of doctrine. Yes, it is a book of theology. Yes, it is a book of history. But all of those things are secondary To the person that is the primary object from the first verse to the last verse, Jesus Christ. The theme of this book is grace. Don't look for another theme. Don't look for another motive. Don't look for anything else as far as the theme of this book except grace. And of course that grace is in the object aforementioned Jesus Christ. There is no grace apart from Christ. And Christ is grace manifested. God with men. Emmanuel. And then when you wrap the whole thing up, those two things, there is one continuous story that encompasses all the stories and all the history in the Bible. And that story is labeled redemption. Redemption. So Christ the object, grace the theme, and redemption the story of the Bible are the three things that make the Bible the Bible. Else it would just be another book, but it is God's Word. It has a plan of redemption. That redemption is achieved, accomplished, purposed, and finished in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is done only by and through grace. So those things must be in our subconscious mind always when we read the Bible. Else we're going to get into a history lesson or a nice, cute, pretty little story and miss the rest of it. I believe if somebody asked me, what is the Bible? I would point them to a scripture I gave you last week, I believe. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10. The Bible is the record that God has given of His Son. That's it. It's God's Word. But based on the three things I just said, this is the record of God's Son. It is a true record. There's plenty of evidence that it is true. Believers have the witness in themselves. And if you don't believe this record... Then you're guilty of accusing God of being a liar. That he gave a false record. And this record will one day judge you. That's the Bible. That's what makes it different. That's what exalts it. That's what elevates it. That's why it does what it does for those of us who believe it. See Christ saved by grace and see the great story of redemption unfolding from Genesis to Revelation. In the text I have read to you today, to the believer, you don't just see two individuals, a king and a queen, meeting, conversing, spending time together, and exchanging gifts. As a believer, if you're looking and you apply yourself diligently You see the Lord Jesus Christ and you see yourself and you see salvation by grace in these 13 verses we've read. The example I would give to you here is if you don't see that, look again. Look a little deeper. Think a little harder. Meditate a little longer on what you've read. I shall never forget... In Hobbs, New Mexico, the first time I ever saw one of those 3D pictures. I mean, it's like seeing the Grand Canyon. I just It just made that kind of impression. I was standing there looking at that thing, and I can't remember what the picture was. I remember who showed it to me. And I stand there looking at it, and they're telling me what I'm seeing, and I'm not seeing what they're telling me I'm seeing. I'm seeing what's on the surface of the picture. And they say, oh, no, there's something else in there. Just look a little harder. Well, I'm looking as hard as I can look, and I don't see nothing but the same thing. I mean, that, that's just, I just, I'll never forget it, the impression that made. And I'd cock my head, and I'd do different things, and I'd look away, and I'd look back. You know, and I saw the same thing. And they're telling me there's something else there and you're just not seeing it. And I'm thinking, you're absolutely crazy because I can, I have 20-20 vision and I'm seeing all there is to see. And then all of a sudden, boom, that 3D kicks in. You know, you didn't do nothing. But your your vision finally snaps in and you see... The depth, And instead of the pitcher being there on the surface, man, it looks like you stick your arm in there. Looks like it's a foot deep into that picture. Looks like the pitcher goes into the wall. That's what we're talking about the Bible. You can just look at the surface and go on your way. Or you can stand there and spend some time looking. And literally, we would say, as far as the truth in this book... The wisdom that can be gleaned, the lessons to be learned, the doctrines that are taught, there is no bottom. There's just the depth of it. And that's what I want to try to present to you from this 10th chapter of 1 Kings here. Solomon is obviously a type of Christ. You can see him as Christ, you can see the queen as a sinner. And there's a much greater meaning than just what we have read on the surface. Many messages I preach and have preached, and many of you here in this church have heard me preach, follow this pattern where we look at a picture, where we read a narrative like this and make an application of spiritual things to seemingly just a normal human lesson or history. And I want to give you today, by way of introduction into this, the reason why we do that and the justification for doing that. I don't feel like I need any, but I have it, and I would like to freely give it to you. And I would kind of subtitle this. We could have titled, we could have titled what we're going to do here instead of Solomon and the Queen. I could have titled it, and I really like this, It would make a great book title if anybody wanted to pick up and write something. Uh, Seeing Christ in the Similitudes of Scripture. That's what we're going to see here. We're going to look into this narrative, as you can throughout the Bible. That's what makes the Bible so unique. You can't exhaust it. The places you can see Christ in similitudes of Scripture. And I'd begin by directing your attention to the only place in the Bible where we find the word similitudes used, Hosea chapter 10, or 12, and verse 10. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10. And to those of you in this church, you should remember or recognize this scripture because of our studies in the writings of John Bunyan. This is what prefaces his allegories many cases or introductions and comments hosea 12 and 10 reads speaking of god i god have and the prophets have also spoken by the prophets and i have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets now we know god is the author of this book don't we we know that it is verbally Inerrantly, God-breathed and inspired. And I won't go to all those scriptures. You've heard them many times. God is the author. Man is the human instrumentality of the Bible. And God could have said it, revealed it, any way he wanted to. We won't go into that, but you know how he has done it. The Spirit of God moved holy men, raised them up, gave them a message, opened their mouth put a coal off the altar in their tongue, and they spoke the Word of God, revealed prophecy, predicted things, manifested things that otherwise would have been hidden. God didn't do it all at once by one man. He did it by a lot of men over a long period of time to compose our Bible. And this scripture Bunyan uses many times. Again, it's the only time the plural is used, but in the singular similitude, That occurs 11 times in the Old and New Testament. Well, what does it mean in that regard? A symbol to. Well, there's a dead giveaway. You know, if you look at the word and look at the spelling, you know, you can make similar out of that real easy, can't you, in the English language. And we know what similar means, and that's really where it comes from, is the definition of this word. The definition of similitudes, as it says here, the Lord spoke by the prophets, not only visions, but similitudes in minutes through their ministry, means a likeness, to be like something. You know, uh, and... We live our lives with resemblances, don't we? Uh, A likeness or to be like is a resemblance of some sort. I'll never forget growing up as a kid, and older people would say, well, you sure, you sure resemble so-and-so. You look like so-and-so. And they may say your mom or your dad or your sibling, or, and sometimes it even goes back further than that. Some, a niece or a nephew can look like an aunt or an uncle or something like that. So we grow up with those things, you know, and dogs and chickens and things that are raised, they bear resemblance to their ancestors in that regard. So this is a common thing, similar to a resemblance. Well, a resemblance in what way? Usually the way I'm talking about here, the examples are in looks, right? Sometimes somebody may say, however, you act just like blah, blah. So it's not always just looks. The resemblance can be in one thing or many things, a similitudes. It can be in a nature, it can be in a personality, it can be in an appearance, It can be in a quality, a virtue, a character, a mannerism, all kinds of things. We can even use similitudes in events and actions, you know. Well, this volcano erupted and it's like the volcano of such and such that did such and such and so. You know, so that's all throughout our lives. Well, that's similitudes, a likeness. But in that sense, think of it in this way. A likeness that is not perfect. If it was perfect likeness, it wouldn't be a likeness at all, would it? I mean, you got a twin. It's not a perfect likeness. i got grandkids, twins. It's not a perfect likeness. There's a greater likeness with those twins than there is in the rest of the siblings, but it's not a perfect likeness in that regard. And this really goes all the way back when you think of it in this definition to the book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 where the triune God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. We are made in the image of the living eternal God. But it is not a perfect resemblance, is it? Far, far from it. Yet there are things, which I don't have the time to go into, that'd be another message on being made in the likeness and image of God, by which we resemble God, else we could not have a relationship or communicate with God. We're different than the animals. The animals don't resemble God. But man does. In what? In the way we're put together. In our very constitution. So forth. So, you get the idea of what we're talking about here. And the point I want to make and impress upon you, I'm going to give you Arthur's definition kind of to think about as we launch into this, or as you read anything in the Bible, as I'm saying here, similitudes, Christ, redemption, grace being taught through these things. Comparative resemblance. Comparative resemblance. And that's what we're going to do here in our text. And that's what, get this, the Bible itself does this. The Bible gives us similitudes using metaphors, even using parables, in order that we might understand more deeply and more clearly the things that are said that are just plain cold facts, okay? You know, we have the Ten Commandments hanging here, and you can read them. And when you read one of them, you don't have to wonder what it's saying. It's pretty straightforward, or what have you, right? It doesn't most, if everything was written like that, there would be no room for detail or explanation or anything, would there? I mean, that's about as straightforward as it gets. The whole Bible's not written like that, though, is it? We're not taught about Christ and His incarnation in words that just once you say them, you got it. No. I mean, Christ becoming incarnate, God taking upon Him human flesh, we don't know anything like that. We haven't seen anything like that. We haven't experienced anything like that. So we don't understand that. So the Bible goes into great detail in various ways to show us that and explain us that. And the whole Bible teaches everything that it teaches in ways like this. Now it says here, again, that the prophets, 12 and 10, I have multiplied vision, you similitudes, by the ministry of the prophets. So get this in your mind. A likeness, a resemblance, but not a perfect resemblance, but a resemblance that will point you to something else. And again, I give you the example. You know, let's just use a hypothetical and say, okay, you see me, you know Arthur, but you don't know what my grandfather looked like. Most of you don't know what my father looked like. But if you see me, you kind of know what he looked like. You get that? Even though you haven't seen him. Okay, that's what we're talking about, and that will be our pursuit here. Let me give you, throw out some examples, and we're going to do some reading. I don't know how far we'll get, but we're going to do some reading of just what Hosea 12.10 here does in this introduction. But it says, the prophets were an example of this very thing. Well, think about Hosea, the writer of the book of Hosea. He was a prophet of God. He's called a minor prophet, but you know that's a man's designation. That doesn't mean, you know, minor don't mean he was less than a major. Uh, Just different thing, division, less less writing, less chapters and what have you than majors. But nevertheless, Hosea himself and his life, his marriage, and his family was a similitude of a prophecy. Look back to chapter 1 with us. No, no better place to start than right here where we are in the book that says this. In verse 1, we are told there the word of the Lord coming unto him and who he was, the son of Be- Beri in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. There's the, uh, uh, the time frame. And then it says here, verse 2, look at it. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms. This is a harlot, a prostitute. And children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Now, here is a similitude that's fixing to play itself out. Hosea is a prophet to the people of God. They are guilty of in the spiritual sense. They have been unfaithful to their God. They're obligated to be faithful to their God. And they have not. And so Hosea's prophecy doesn't just involve words. It involves him and his life. Verse 3, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, which conceived and bare him a son. The harlot that he married, Gomer here, was a harlot by nature. And even though he married her, if you know the story in Hosea and we don't have time to go in it, she never changed her ways from being a harlot. She was not a faithful wife. She was a harlot. She was used to being a harlot. And even though she married Hosea and bare him three children, she departed and went back into harlotry and prostitution. And it's a wonderful story there, again, because it shows Hosea didn't just cast her off forever and leave her. He went back and got her again. Bought her back when she was at the lowest of the low. All of that showing, through similitude, God's relationship with Israel. Just amazing. Now, one more thing here I want to show you in the details is, is they had these children... And the names of these children, specifically, I'm not going to take the time to read it. It's in the following verses here. The names of these children were prophetically speaking of how God would relate and the relationship He would have with Israel because of their unfaithfulness. So let's read the first one here. Uh, Let me come down and the Lord said in verse 4, said unto him to the first son, call his name Jezreel for yet a little while and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. Here through the prophet, the harlot, and their child which they conceived and the name God give him, God is telling forth a prophecy of what's going to happen. I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now again, you think, why God do it this way? I I can't answer that. (laughs) Except I can just say to you, the infinite wisdom of God saw fit to do it this way, and it couldn't have been done a different way or a better way, in my opinion. Verse 6, she conceived again, bare a daughter God, said to her, call her name Loruhamah, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And that's what the name means. So again, all of this is the playing out of a similitude of what God is going to do with the chosen people, the seed of Abraham, uh, uh, the Jews, and that eventually He's not going to cast them off forever. Paul asked that question in the book of Romans. God cast away His people? No, He didn't. In fact, look at verse 7. Mixed in with this, he says in verse 6, I will, I will no more have mercy upon them. I'll rather take them away. Verse 7, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. Will not save them by bow, by sword, by battle, nor by horse, nor by horsemen. Down to verse 10. Um, the last one, 9, i got to read it for context. Another child, that God called his name uh, Loami. Loami, for ye are not my people and I will not be your God. That's what it means yet verse 10 the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea and cannot be measured nor numbered and it shall come to pass that in the place where it is said unto them ye are not my people there it shall be said unto them ye are the sons of the living God then shall the children of Judah and the daughter of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of jezreel in the midst of all of that speaking of judgment, the harlotry, the idolatry and the things that were done that would meet them the judgment of God. Inclusive of that we see what? God's mercy, God's promised conversion God's promised salvation and even included in here not just that of Israel but Gentiles also. So again here we have a similitude of of one prophet at the very beginning You know, and this is involving, again, pointing to things that will only happen and come to pass in Christ by grace because it's part of the great plan of redemption. (laughs) That's similitudes right there in the book of Hosea. Now, let's jump to another, and, and I'll show you these as long as we have time this morning, a few. Let's turn to the fifth chapter of Isaiah, and we'll show you a little different one. That one was very personal, obviously. Uh, in Hosea's life, I mean, think about that. That took a lot of time. I mean, we don't even know how much time, but they had three children. She went away from him. He went and got her back. And, I mean, that was a lot of his life, all this coming to pass. Well, that was very personal. It involved people. It involved children, you know, and so forth and so on. Here's a more common way that these similitudes reveal themselves in God's Word. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard? that I have not done to it. wherein, Wherefore, when I look, that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes? And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, and there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Let's pause right there. Okay, that's just an anonymous story if we were to say, here's the story, right? But it's much more than a story. It's a similitude. Look at verse 7. Here's the the key line that tells us, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. See that? And the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. That's what we're talking about. See, everything in that nice little pretty story about some owner of a vineyard, the work that he did and expecting a harvest, and instead of getting what he expected, he got the opposite and so forth, so he decided he would destroy it. That's all a similitude, a likeness, a resemblance of God's relationship with whom? Right there it is, verse 7. The house of Israel. The house of Israel. That's what we're talking about. Let's look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. And if nothing else, this introduction is a lesson, lesson on, again, how to look deeper into these similitudes and see the 3D picture of Christ, grace, and redemption that's really hidden behind the scenes, okay? And I'm just going to do a few of them, and we probably won't get done today, but the Bible is full of them. And it's one of those things that's like, you know, once I saw that picture, then I could look away and look back and I could see it. But until I saw it the first time, I just could not see it. I did not see what was there. But here again, the point is, you know what? It was there all the time. There wasn't no- with the picture. The problem was I couldn't see it. But once I saw it, it was so easy to see. And once you start looking for Christ, and I've told you this before, I don't know how many times and how many lessons, maybe you forgot, I hope you had, but once you start looking, I mean you'll find Christ under every leaf, under every rock, you'll find him in the sky, you'll find him here, you'll find him there. Grace is just running through this Bible like like water. <laughs> And the whole flavor of it is redemption. It's just, you can't can't miss it. And that's wondrous to get to that point, if you see that. All right, (coughs) excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Okay, this is a similitude. And his there would be betrothals or engagements, okay? The Lord uses that language a lot about Israel being his people, being engaged to them, betrothed to them, marrying them, and then they behave like Gomer did Hosea's wife, and he would seek to put them away by a bill of divorcement. That's mentioned in the prophets, but yet he does not utterly abandon them, just like Hosea and Gomer. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. That, you know what that goes back to? God said to Moses I'll, or Abraham, I'll bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. That's it right there. That's the reference. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness, through a land of desolation, deserts and of pits, through a land of drought drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwell? And I brought you into a plentiful country, to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. Don't lose sight of this, that again, this is the love of the espouses. When God was espoused to Israel. There's a scripture, I can't remember where it is right now, about God bringing his son out of Egypt, you know. I mean, he did that with Christ, but when he brought Israel out of Egypt, he was bringing out his son in that, the apple of his eye, okay? So this is what he's saying here. I brought you in a plentiful country. It's like a man taking a wife, brings her into his home, you know, into the blessings and things that they incur in marriage. He provides for her. To eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof, but when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage abomination. This is like an unfaithful wife. The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you. Got that? This is like a wife or a husband that's went astray now. Been unfaithful. And yet the other party says, I'm pleading with you. You know? The Hosea-Gomer relation, And with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see, and send unto Kedar and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit." Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So we have here a similitude. And within that, right there in the last verse, I read the metaphor of like a cistern, broken cisterns, you see. And all this again... Referring to the relationship between God and His people. That's what we're going to be looking at in Solomon and the Queen. There's a relationship there between those two individuals that is a similitude of a greater relationship between Christ and those whom He redeems. That's what we'll be looking at, Lord willing couple more here in Jeremiah, and that's probably all the time we have for this morning. I don't want to bore you, but I hope you have find this interesting. And the thing I want to set before you is how much of this there is in the Bible. So you'll see, it is not an uncommon thing that I am trying to do in our text. It is a very common thing throughout Scripture. Thirteenth of Jeremiah, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord, and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hadst got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass, after many days, that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence, which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates, and digged, and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah, and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle, which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me, The whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. Again, a marvelous similitude, right? Of God's relationship with His people in a simple manner of taking a garment, putting it on, taking it off, taking it somewhere, burying it, leaving it for a while, come back and getting it. And over that period of time, that thing that was useful at the beginning is now worthless. It is marred. Well, speaking of marred, let's do one more, shall we? Turn over a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 18. Here's a very familiar similitude that you're probably more familiar with. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there will I cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter, to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it? If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now therefore go to, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you, return ye now everyone from his evil way, make your ways and your doings good. Another similitude of that relationship that God used through the prophet to deliver the message, literally the message of the gospel, exposing their sin and commanding them to repent, to turn and to come back to the gracious and loving God from whom they had departed. We'll go on with some more of these another time, but let me close with this thought that may be so very familiar to you. And by the way, I will mention, we'll show you a few more in the Old Testament. We also then going to put the icing on the cake with some from the New Testament. We mentioned to you parables before. We're not going into the parables, but we are going to look at some similitudes in the New Testament that specifically justify what we're doing in seeing Christ in so many places, persons, actions, events, and themes. But to close today, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 42. It is a scripture we'll be referencing at other times as we go through this. So it will be just as foundational as our text. And it is the only mention, other than in one of the other Gospels, of our text character, Queen of Sheba, Solomon, the discourse. Matthew twelve forty two, "...the Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with this generation." and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, Christ himself is saying that Solomon was a similitude of himself. Many times we say it like this. He was a type of Christ. And indeed he was. But let's go back as we close. Think about it. Solomon bore a likeness. A resemblance. Yet not a perfect resemblance because there was only one son of God. But he bore a similitude or a resemblance in many ways to the son of God. And his relationship with the queen of Sheba is a similitude of the grace of God to lost sinners. And so that will be our pursuit in the text. A greater than Solomon can be seen in Solomon. God bless his word to your hearing.